0: I'd like for you guys to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be focusing on verses 6 through 8, as you see on the screen. Once more, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I need to give you a little context before we actually dive into our text. Just a little background here. In verses 1 through 11, Paul basically... He basically lays out a blueprint for Christian unity. That's the whole text, this whole section. It's it's all about Christian unity. Um, It's not that the Philippians had disunity in the church, there may have been some of that, um, but the whole text has to do with unity and and everybody getting along and loving each other and being Christ like and and doing what we should do. Because, you know, divisiveness in the church is terrible. Um, it ruins our witness to the world and everything else. And so this whole text really deals with Christian unity, which makes it even less about Christmas. Um, in verses 3 through 4, Paul exhorts the Philippians to basically do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of conceit, but to be humble, to humble themselves and, and to count others as more significant than themselves, and and basically to look after the interests of others, not their own interests. That's a huge exhortation in verses 3 and 4. I think Paul understood that unity in the church can come only from an attitude of genuine humility. The only way that you can really have unity in a church body is that there has to be extraordinary humility there. Everyone has to embody humility. Everyone has to be humble, right? Because if everyone's humble, and they don't think highly of themselves, but you have one guy and gal or whatever that's very prideful. they They are disruptive and they disrupt the unity because they're all about themselves. And so I think Paul understood very clearly, according to the text, that humility is the trademark and that's something that you have to have. We have to As believers, we have to truly regard others as more important than ourselves. That that is humility. In verse 5, Paul exhorts the Philippians to have the mind of Christ, who, what, set for us the highest example of humility. The highest example of humility. And in verses 6 through 8, our text, Paul illustrates Christ's humility by describing his condescension. His condescension. What is his condescension? It is how he went from a highly exalted position in heaven to a low, low position as a man and to an even lower position as a man on a cross. That is essentially what the doctrine of condescension is. It, It is it is the idea or the truth surrounding Christ stepping down out of glory, leaving behind his riches, his blessings, his glory, you know, um, his praise, his adoration to come down here to save us. And I think that his condescension doesn't just include that, but it, his condescension is seen not just in him stepping down from heaven, leaving aside the heaven's blessings in these things, but in his entire life. His entire life was um, exhibited humiliation and and culminates at the cross. So his condescension is really from the moment he leaves heaven to the cross, to the cross, to the burial even. When Christmas time comes around every year, we rightly focus on the birth of Christ, right? That's, That's Christmas. That's what we're supposed to do. But here's the deal we tend to move forward from that point of impact, don't we? We actually value the birth of Christ based on what he did after his birth. All of the value that we ascribe and all of the celebration we ascribe to the birth of Christ is based on what he did after his birth. But who was he before his birth? What did he give up for us? Our value of the birth of Christ must be determined or based not on what he did post-birth, but also pre-birth. On who he was for all eternity and on what he laid aside and set aside to come to save us. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. You know, what position did he hold? What did he actually give up to come and save us? And, and the beauty of this text that I've selected, it, it answers these questions. It plainly answers these questions. And, and my prayer and hope is that by the time we're finished, we will all see Christmas and the birth of Christ more holistically, in a broader way, where our view of it isn't based entirely on what he did after his birth, but also on what he did prior to his birth. Makes sense, right? I have entitled this message, The Condescension of Christ, and we are going to look at, in this text, four downward steps Christ took on our behalf. Let's uh, let's begin by looking at the first downward step. Number one, Christ was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We see that in verses 6 through 7a. Now, we must understand that Paul was writing in past tense. He was referring to who Christ was or is prior to his birth. He is referring to who Christ is during his incarnation or time on earth. And and who does Paul say Christ is? was and is during those particular moments, prior to his birth and after his birth during his ministry, who is Christ according to the word of God here? He, Paul says, was in the form of God. He was in the form of God, which was Paul's way of saying he was God in the past. He was God in the past. You see, we must understand before we even get to the birth of Christ that Christ is the second person of what we call the holy trinity. Right? You've got the Father, you've got God the Father, you've got God the Son, that's Christ, the Son of God, and you've got God the Holy Spirit. All three are the same God and yet all three have distinct roles in our salvation. They serve us differently, but they're the same and it's it's a mystery. The trinity is a mystery I can't get my mind around that. But it's true think in terms of our salvation how all three members of the Godhead serve us God the Father he wrought our salvation he's the designer he's the architect God the Son Christ what bought our salvation on the cross and God the Holy Spirit brought this salvation to us he's the one that brings it to us down from heaven and regenerates and remakes our hearts and implants the gifts of faith and repentance and so all three members of Who are all three the same God, yet different in the way they serve us, are involved in our salvation. And, And Paul is just saying look, Christ was in the form of God before He ever came and during His incarnation. He is God. And Paul is definitely not excluding who Christ is as God now, He's always God. The word was is an interesting word in the Greek, it's huparko, and it denotes the continuance of a previous state or existence. It stresses the essence of a person's nature, that which is absolutely unalterable and unchangeable. Uh, William Barclay called it that part of a person which in any circumstances stays the same. And and so, was does not mean that Christ was God at some point and is no longer God. It means he was continuously. He's never ceased to be God. If you look at it in the Greek, it comes through that way. So, Paul is basically telling us that that Christ was in the form of God prior to his birth, which means he preexisted, eternal God. Um, He is in the form of God during his incarnation and ministry to us, and he is God now. He is in the form of God now. In other words, he's always been God from eternity past, eternity forward. There's never been a moment where Christ was not God, is what Paul is telling us. Christ was, is, and always will be God. And and you say, well, we're Christians, we believe that. Well, guess what? There's a whole lot out there who name the name of Christ that don't believe it. There's a lot of cult groups and they call themselves Christian and they don't believe that, they believe that Christ came into existence at his birth. They do not believe that he existed prior to his birth. And and this text here in verses 6 through 7a are telling us he was God before his birth, he was God during, he's God after. He's always been God. Now how exactly that works within the uh, Trinitarian deal, it's it's tough for us to get our minds around, but it's... Totally, totally true. And this scripture just bolsters this over and over and over. So what what Paul is telling us here is that the downward step, because there's a downward step here. The downward step Paul is pointing to here, it doesn't have to do with the deity of Christ. Some will tell you that when Christ stepped, he was God before. And then when he stepped into creation, became a baby, he got rid of his godness. At that point, he ceased to be God. And that is equally untrue. He How can God cease to be God? You know, you can't even cease to be a human being. You can cease to be alive, but you can't cease to be a human being. You can think you're a lizard, and some people act like a lizard, uh, but you can't cease to be a human being. That um, That is the part of your being that is inalterable, that cannot be changed, that we would say is immutable, unchanging so the downward step here doesn't have to do with the deity of Christ at all. In fact, during his incarnation, Christ never denied or minimized his deity. Not once. He was unambiguous in acknowledging his divine sonship and oneness with the Father, his authority over all flesh, and his divine power to give eternal life. Yet, he never used his divine power or authority for personal advantage. Never at all, never once. Why? Because such prerogatives of his divinity were not a thing to be grasped. So the downward step Paul is pointing to here doesn't have to do with Christ's deity. It has to do with the exalted position Christ left behind to come and save us. That's what he's pointing to here. Prior to his birth, think about this. Prior to the birth of Christ, Christ, the eternal Christ, the eternal Son of God, the eternal God created all things. Genesis 1, um, verses 1 through 31. When you read the creation account, it is the creation. Is being manifested and coming through Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. You don't believe me? Read John chapter 1, verse 3. Read Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Who created all things? God. Yes. God the Son. What does that tell us? It tells us that He existed before the foundations of the world. He is what? He's always been God. And guess what? He not only created all things, He rules over all things. And I think there's a a misunderstanding, um, even in this text, and especially in verse 8, where it talks about, you know, after Jesus completed his ministry, God gave him the name above all names. We need to understand something here. Christ has always had the name that is above (laughs) all names. Christ wasn't made Lord because of what he did on earth. Christ has always been Lord. He is the eternal Lord lord he has ruled and reigned over the creation since it was created since it came through his blessed fingertips actually through his words he is not only the creator but he is the lord over all. so he wasn't appointed to this lordship he's always been lord he is the lord of the old testament when you see the word lord it's a reference to christ He is the Lord who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.8. He is the Lord who clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins right after they sinned. Genesis 3.21, he clothed them in animal skins as a foreshadow of the righteousness that he will clothe people with through faith. He is the Lord who, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, the I am. Moses says, who am I going to tell the Israelites that sent me? Nobody's going to believe me. You tell them I am sent you. And then we know that there are six or seven I am statements in the book of John that Christ uttered and said, tying himself to the Lord of that burning bush and that encounter. He is the great I am. Christ is the Lord I am. He is. Christ is Lord. He always has been Lord, and he always will be Lord. When he condescended and came to earth, he did not cease to be God. He did not cease to be Lord. He was still the Lord. And now some of you are thinking, well, I've read the Gospels, and I've seen the disciples call him Lord, and others call him Lord. Why? Because he is the Lord. He was the Lord during his incarnation, prior to that, and he is today. And yet, as Lord, when he condescends, when he comes down, he steps off of this throne of eternal glory and adoration and, and worship. He steps down off of it and condescends and comes down here. And what does he do? He leaves behind the privileges and, and glories Of his deity in lordship. Look at that phrase there that Paul uses. He emptied himself. Let me tell you, there might not be another phrase in the Bible that people get more wrong than that one. Well, he emptied himself of his lordship. Well, he emptied himself of his deity. Well, he emptied himself of all of his divine attributes. Well, he emptied himself of this. Well, he... So much speculation and false theology surrounding this wonderful phrase. The question is, what did Christ empty himself of? I would say at least four things. At least four things. First, obviously, he emptied himself of divine glory. he, He didn't come down here radiating at all times his full glory. You notice in the Gospel accounts, there's a couple of appearances of it, like at the transfiguration and stuff. That is what Christ has looked like forever in eternity in heaven. And yet he comes down and he looks like you and I. In fact, Isaiah says there was nothing about him that would have drawn men to him. Um, I, I, he was not, uh, uh, you know, he would not have made the cover of GQ. There was nothing about his physical appearance that was glorious. He looked like a common Jewish person in the first century. Why? He, he emptied himself of his divine Glory. And, and just think of that, that somehow he can do this, but he sets that aside as he comes down. And, but prior to his birth, he is enthroned in divine glory and, and, and he's worshiped by myriads of angels and multitudes of saints as Lord. This is what's happening before he comes. His divine glory radiated in full force, and every eye in heaven could. Gaze upon him in wondrous awe. Some angels even covered their faces because his glory was so spectacular. Isaiah 6. And yet when he condescended, he basically left behind his divine glory. Emptying himself of his glory, of his divine glory, means that his divine glory did not fully depart from him, but it actually means that it became veiled. It became veiled behind human flesh. It became hidden in his humanity so that men could not see it unless he revealed it to them. Case in point, the transfiguration. During his incarnation, his time on earth, he sets that glory aside. And yet, Christ longed to return to his exalted position and glory. He wanted to return to it. Uh, He expressed this desire uh, in his high priestly prayer when he said, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is something that Christ sets aside, his divine glory. It becomes hidden, naked to the human eye. He sets it aside to come here for us. And yet, especially at the tail end of his ministry, as the cross is on the next, very next day, on Friday, he is praying to the Father, Father, I basically can't wait to return to my position in glory. How spectacular. He emptied himself of his divine glory for for you, for me. That's condescension. That's humility. Second, Christ emptied himself of independent divine authority. Just so you know, and I know the Godhead, the Trinity is a mystery. It's tough to get our minds around it, but... There isn't a reigning member in the Godhead. One doesn't reign over the other. They are all co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious. It's not that the Father is higher than the Son or that the Son is higher than the Holy Spirit. Now, I say during the incarnation, the Son humbled himself to the point of viewing the Father as higher than himself in his humanity and flesh. But in all eternity past, they are completely equal. One doesn't tell the other what to do. They have perfect love and perfect unity within the Godhead. They love each other to the point where they very naturally serve one another in humility, which is spectacular and tough to get your mind around. Basically, no one directs God. No one tells God what to do. Now, people tell God what to do all the time, especially in certain church circles. God, that's blasphemous. God doesn't get his orders from anyone, including the members of the Trinity. No one directs God. No one, um, you know, God doesn't answer to anyone. He doesn't have to answer to anyone. He has this sort of independent authority and holiness where people and creation answer to him. So so no one answers. God doesn't answer to anyone. No one directs God. God actually does whatever He wants, whenever He wants. And everything that He does is perfect and holy. Above every reproach, nothing that He does can be questioned by sinful man, although we attempt to do that. There's no ruling member in the Trinity. One does not rule over the other. They are co-equal and co-loving, co-unified. And yet when Christ, who is God, condescended and came to earth, he emptied himself and set aside this independent divine authority that he has had for all eternity. He sets that aside, condescends, to even serve the Father. He refers to the Father at several instances in the gospel as greater than him. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hands, but more importantly, no one can snatch you from the Father's hands who is greater than me. What does that show? Is God actually greater than God the Son, God the Father greater than God the Son? No! They're equal. But yet in Christ's mind, in his condescension and and humility, he views the Father as higher than him in his humanity. He sets aside this independent... In other words... Christ did not come to do whatever He wants when God can, in fact, do whatever He wants. What did Christ say? Uh, in one place in particular, John 6, 38, He declared this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. There is the, there is the emptying of His will. His wonderful, independent, divine authority. He sets that aside to come. I came to serve the Father. Thirdly, Christ emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. This does not mean that Christ did not have all of his divine attributes intact. Again, Christ is fully God, fully man as being fully God, he cannot cease to be anything but God and possess all of the attributes that God possesses. And yet somehow, somehow, within Christ, there's an emptying of some of the ability of these attributes, at least one that I can think of. Um, One of the divine attributes that seemed to be limited during his incarnation was his omniscience, his all-knowledge right? Because God is omniscient, which means He knows all things. Christ is God. Christ is fully God. Christ is fully man. And yet, when He steps down and condescends, He comes. There are times where He appears to have full omniscience, full knowledge of of everything. And there is at least one occasion where we read where it seems that He doesn't have it all which is very interesting. What am I referring to? When he said that he did not know the hour or the day and the hour of his return, right? The second advent. This is something that Christ told his disciples. Well, when are you going to come back? When are you going to set things right? When are you going to establish your kingdom and do all this stuff? Well, this is something that I do not know. It's something that only the father knows is what he said in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six. So there appears to be some kind of supernatural limitation to at least one of his divine attributes. And what would we ascribe that to? His deity? No, because that can't change. We would ascribe that to his humanity. But like I said, there were moments where his omniscience is so clearly seen, like when he fully knew Nathaniel, who became a disciple of his. He fully knew him before ever meeting him. (laughs) John 1, verse 48, which completely blew Nathaniel's mind. How do you already know me? I've never even met you. (laughs) I know you. I created you. You know, there's an example of omniscience. During his incarnation, Christ was fully God, but he clearly did not have full use of some of his divine attributes and we would say, his omniscience because of what he said. But why? How and why? Why does he not have the full use of it? Because of what Paul has told us here. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. So that's the third one. And fourth, Christ emptied himself of heaven's riches. Of heaven's riches. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9? He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, There's a lot of debate on what riches is Paul talking about here. Is he he talking about Christ's earthly poverty? I mean, that's what some theologians seem to think he's referring to here. And we we know that Christ was earthly poor, right? Christ himself said foxes have dens and, and birds have nests. But the Son of Man, that's Him, had no place to rest His head, right? Luke chapter 9, verse 58. Christ was, in a sense, homeless. So He was earthly poor. He was earthly poor. But guess what? That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about His earthly poverty at all. He's not pointing to that one bit. He was pointing to the riches that Christ left behind to come and save us. That's what he's talking about pointing to heaven's riches. Christ emptied himself to come and save you of his heavenly riches, his heavenly glory. It's amazing when you ponder what he's given up for us. Christ forsook the adoration and and worship and and service of angels and, and saints in heaven. Those are riches in heaven. Those are riches, and he gives them up. Think of it like this. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills came to preach on a hill, pray on a hill, sleep on a hill, and be nailed to a cross on a hill. Gave it up. Gave it up. Gave it up. Gave it up for you. Gave it up for me. Let's look at the second downward step. And this really just plays into what we've been talking about. Secondly, Christ took on the form of a servant. Verse 7b. Prior to his birth. Christ was served by heavenly angels and, and saints, multitudes of saints that, were, that are in heaven and on earth. And yet, when he condescends and, and comes down out of heaven, out of the glories and riches of heaven, and he, he comes down to save us, he came not just as our servant, or not just as our savior, but he comes as a servant. Imagine that. The God who created all things for His glory condescends and comes down to be a servant. What? And Christ stated this repeatedly in multiple places. Uh, One in particular where He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what are one of the ways that He served? Well, He said right after that, He said, To give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came as a servant. Christ condescended to become a servant. He did not come down here to be hailed by men, but to save men from hell. Whom did Christ serve? Well, we look at the gospel accounts and we know that He came and served the Father. Firstly, how? By fully and perfectly obeying the Father's will and doing His own part in the plan of salvation. Christ Christ had a part in salvation, in the plan of salvation to accomplish, and that was to condescend and come and, and live a perfect life and die on a cross for our sins and be buried and rise three days later Christ came to serve the Father by obeying His will and doing His part in the plan of salvation He served ordinary people throughout Israel and up in the northern region and all over the place in areas that where Jews wouldn't go into if you paid them high money how did he serve ordinary people? Well, I mean, preaching the gospel to people is service. And, and healing people's infirmities and exercising demons. And he literally did that, removing demons from demon-possessed people. That's, that's service. And, and what about feeding people thousands and thousands at a time, at least on two occasions that we see? 5,000 men one time and 4,000 men later. Men, women, and children aren't mentioned. He served ordinary people. He served the Father. He served ordinary people. He served His disciples. How? By caring for their needs. By training them for ministry. By protecting them from adversaries. By (laughs) doing something that still blows my mind. By washing their feet. The dirty, grubby, Feet, he washes as a servant. The God who created every person and every foot, some less glorious than others, (laughs) washes feet and all they wore were sandals in the desert. you got to imagine the hammer time these guys had on their toes. He does this for them. This is, this is mind-blowing. This is, this is how he served his disciples, but he also served the elect. He also served the elect, how? By securing for them the covenant promise of eternal life. How did he do this? I've already mentioned it. By living a perfect life, by dying on a cross for our sins by being buried, by rising from the grave. Three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Christ came as a servant. Christ even serves and served the entire world, everyone, by sending the Holy Spirit into the world to do what? Convict the world of sin, as well as to regenerate his people who are in the world. Christ came as a servant. Incredibly, Christ is still a servant who serves His beloved bride through divine providence and through His high priestly ministry. He still serves you and I. He still serves you and I. Christ stepped down from His high position and glory in heaven, His riches, to become a servant to sinners like you and me. How low, what an inglorious thing He has done for you and me. Now let's look at the third downward step. Christ was born in the likeness of men and found in human form, verses 7c through 8a. This is Christmas right here, is it not? the glorious Creator and Lord of all left behind His exalted position, divine glory, heavenly riches, to not only enter His creation, but become part of it and become subjected to it. Imagine that. That is incredible to think about. And we know, according to the Gospels, He was born of a virgin, and as Paul says here, in the likeness of men, or we could just simply translate that as, or render it as, as a man. I mean, that's Christmas, guys. That's the birth of Christ. If you've been wondering, where is He going with this? Now, we must understand that Christ had to come down and become a man. It was necessary. He had to do this. Why? Well, as John Milton rightly put it in his wonderful uh, poem, Paradise Lost, he had to come down and become a man because paradise was lost through a man. Which man? Which man lost paradise? Adam! Adam! was our federal head. He was our, our representative on earth. And when he, when he disobeyed God, when he, when he sinned, he, he thrust all of creation into sin, especially his progeny, you and me. We are all sinners because of Adam, as well as by choice. I mean, we love sin. And since man... A man brought sin, death, and God's curses into the world. Only a man could undo these things. Does that make sense? Yes. But it couldn't be just any man. When Adam fell, he was a perfect man, so only a perfect man could do the job. And guess what? The trouble is, there hasn't been any perfect men on earth since Adam All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All like sheep have gone astray. No one, not one, seeks after God. Since heaven is the only place in creation where perfect men reside, only heaven could provide what we need. And this is where Christ comes in. Before the foundations of the world, Christ chose to step down. He chose to condescend and become the God-man, the second Adam, who would enter our world and undo sin, death, and the curses of God. He is the true and better Adam who would come to not only restore paradise, but recreate it even better. Becoming A man was a low point within the condescension of Christ. Think about it. You're God who's created all things for your glory. And you step down off of your throne to actually become a created man. A man, a person born of a woman, of a virgin. God becomes, man, that's that's low. That's low for God, right? That's that's a downward step. That's That's a low point in the condescension of Christ. But guess what? It wasn't the lowest point in the condescension of Christ. Guess what? He had to go much, much lower to save us. Lower than just becoming a man. Which in my opinion is pretty low. Why? Because I'm a man. And I know what it's like to be a man. And it kind of stinks sometimes. Sin. He had to go lower. Lower. Much lower. Now we can look at the fourth downward step. Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8a, or verse 8b, pardon me. The phrase humbled himself does not refer merely to the inglorious nature of his descent from heaven or to the humiliating circumstances he endured during his incarnation, but to his personal attitude and disposition. Christ came as a servant, and he did not think of himself as higher than anyone else, including his adversaries, his enemies. He was never bossy, he was never pushy, and if you read the Gospels and you look at Especially if they read the Gospel of John and how the disciples behaved with him, they wouldn't have been alive if I were the Christ. I would have like smite Peter. Pfft. I mean, they were they were terrible, dull and dense and ignorant and foolish. And I'm not gonna let anyone kill you, Jesus. Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh, sorry. I mean, just he was never bossy with them. Never pushy with anyone he was always during his incarnation always respectful always submissive even during his trial and his punishment and his crucifixion he humbled himself as if coming down here and condescending and become a man isn't isn't already a maximum level humility he humbles himself more by never looking or treating anyone as being lower than himself. And it blows my mind that he does this with his adversaries, his persecutors. Uh, There's uh, times where, especially in in the garden, where he could have easily called down 12 legions of angels to come to his defense. There isn't a military on earth that could handle 12 legions of angels. You could assemble all of the armies of the world with America out in front, and they could not handle 12 legions of angels. And he could have easily called them down to defend him. Matthew 26, 53 even vocalized this, but what does he do? He doesn't do that. He doesn't call them down. Instead, he humbles himself even more in that moment. (laughs) Think of it, think about this: The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who judges the nations, humbly allowed himself to be judged and convicted in a kangaroo court and at the stone pavement before the Romans. the one who judges all allowed himself to be judged and most unfairly. The one who bore and wore the the crown of heaven humbly allowed himself to be crowned with a crown of razor-sharp thorns. The one who justly and righteously doles out divine punishment humbly allowed himself to be punished with a cat of nine tails. Whipped beyond recognition, skin laid open, flesh and bone exposed and torn. The one who holds the keys to death in Hades humbly allowed himself to be sentenced to death. This, this, is, this is his condescension that we're talking about. Just imagine that. The God of life and light. John 1.4, right? Sentenced to death. How low. How inglorious. But it gets lower. There were different types of capital punishment in the first century. There was death by beheading. The guy that, the human author behind the writing of this wonderful epistle was beheaded, Paul. James, uh, the disciple James, brother of John, was beheaded. Beheading was a a common form of capital punishment and execution in the first century. Um, Actually, death by strangling was as well. Uh, There was death by being cast from a great height, thrown down from a high place. There was death by being buried alive. There's death by drowning. There's death by wild beast, like being thrown to the lions. That was common in the first century, a type of execution. And there was death by crucifixion, which was by far the worst. The condemned was tied to a crossbar and led through town to a particular spot with high visibility, usually up on a hill where everyone could see. The crossbar was then attached to a high pole and The condemned person would be stripped naked and then nailed to both the crossbar and the pole. And he would be left there in excruciating pain for all to see. Total and absolute humiliation. The point of crucifixion was to torture and humiliate in the most extraordinary way. That's why they devised that ancient way of death. It was just to to prolong death and suffering and to humiliate. if you get your head cut off, it's over. In other ways, it's just, I don't know, being torn apart by animals. I can't imagine what that's like. But I would imagine that's pretty quick. But the Romans would deliberately crucify, to make a point. And you know who they usually crucified? Those who committed the highest crimes like treason and sedition. And maybe you don't know this or not, but there was a a balancing act that crucified victims had to play while they were hanging on the cross. If they let their bodies sag, breathing became difficult and suffocation would begin to set in. But if they pushed up with their legs or pulled up with their arms, the nail wounds would begin to radiate more and more pain. And so they were stuck in this cycle of trying to keep themselves into position so they could breathe but that hurt so bad they would let go and then they couldn't breathe at all and so they would be up and down and up and down and they also had the problem of hunger and thirst since they were not permitted to eat or drink you know if you got a, a prison sentence back then you got three hots and a cot wasn't all that great thanks for the gruel but at least you got to eat, at least you got to drink, at least you had shelter. At best, a strong man crucified. At best, a strong man, maybe like James here or Tom who's not with us today, it would last two to three days tops before succumbing to their, their injuries in the hot desert sun. I'm telling you this. Because Christ not only humbled himself to death, but he humbled himself to this kind of death, crucifixion. That's the point of death that he took, that he was given. The one who created this vast, vast universe and and hung entire galaxies and Innumerable stars in space humbly allowed himself to be hung on a cross. That's low. That's inglorious. And yet, the crucifixion was not the lowest point in the condescension of Yeah, he went lower. The lowest point occurred while Christ hung suffering and dying on the cross. Can you guess what it was? It was when the sins of the world were placed upon his innocent body. That's the lowest point. The lowest point occurred When the perfect, sinless, fully righteous Christ bore my sin, bore your sin, bore the sins of the world on his battered body. That's the lowest point. The condescension of Christ can be summarized like this. When Christ left his exalted position in heaven glory and left his glory and emptied himself, that was low. When Christ took on the form of a servant, that was lower. When Christ entered his creation and became a man subjected to, to what men are subjected to in all of that, that was even Lower. And when Christ humbled himself to death, death on a cross, and bore our terrible, terrible sins and died, that was the lowest. What Paul is telling us here is that Christ plunged the deepest depths to save us. And this is why Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 warns us not to neglect the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who neglect it, those who reject it, have done what? They have trampled underfoot the Son of God, treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and insulted the Spirit of grace. And because of this, they shall fall into the hands of the living God who declared, vengeance is mine, I shall repay. Accept the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Trust that he condescended firstly and left all of that behind to come down and to live the life that you can't live, a life of perfect obedience. No matter how hard you try, you can't do it. But he did it. Trust that he did that for you. Trust that he bore your nasty sin, your disgusting, repulsive sin on his body. He died to pay for it. Trust that he was buried. Buried in a tomb for three days. Trust that after the third day or on the third day, He rose from that tomb victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. If you read the rest of this section in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, you will find that that God restored to Christ the highly exalted position He set aside when He came to save us. If you just take your time to read it. And you will also see that God made Christ a promise that that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a restoration. Christ got back that which he set aside when his work was complete after he ascended and returned. How wonderful is that? Kind of reminds you of the story of Job, doesn't it? Of course, Job didn't die for our sins. But Job got back what he lost. Christ got back what he never lost, but what he deliberately set aside For you. When Christmas time comes around and we begin to focus on the birth of Christ, may we do so in a more holistic way from now on by considering who Christ was before his birth and what he gave up to come and save us, his condescension. Let us not forget that the humility Christ displayed through his condescension is the example his people must follow. We are to live in a perpetual state of condescension, always dying to ourselves, getting lower and lower. Christ, what? Must increase. And we must, what? Decrease. Remember the words of John the Baptist? That's our mantra. That's our mantra. May we humble ourselves this Christmas here and this week and and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, count others as more significant than ourselves, and do our very best to look after the interests of others. Christmas is a time for us not to be served, but to serve and to be a blessing to others.